We're going to dive right in no matter what Fred says. That did get recorded and will go on iTunes. All right. <laughs> so if you could grab your notes. Ron was a, a little excited about the sermon this morning. So we'll get started a little late, but we'll, we'll dive right in. Um, I have no PowerPoint today, so you're going to have to listen to me a little closer. I'll try to remember your blanks and get those filled out. Um, so we'll go old school. Um, and uh, anyway, looking forward to jumping into the epistles. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to own a Bible, to own multiple Bibles, to um, carry them with us, to display them prominently, to not worry about um, them getting us in trouble. Thank you for your word that is so accessible to us across so many platforms. We can listen to your word. We can read it in different versions. We can access it on our phones and our tablets and our computers. And uh, Lord, your, your word is, is so easily accessible, and yet um, often we keep it at, at arm's length. So Father, would you do more than just fill our heads with knowledge in um, this Sunday School series, but would you also um, compel us, motivate us, draw us to your word again, or draw us to your word for the first time, that we might see the wonderful riches contained in it, and that we might understand them, and in understanding them, that we might understand you better. And that we would draw closer to you and live lives worthy of the calling that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, well we're going to start in the epistles today. Today we're jumping to the New Testament. So we've covered the Old Testament genres. And we've got three New Testament genres over the next few weeks. Um, we're not starting in order just because of the way things worked out with Ron and I scheduling this. Um, but we will be in the epistles uh, this week. A, a large chunk of scripture. Uh, if you've got your notes, we're going to dive right in. What is an epistle? It's not a word I, I gathered that you used this last week, unless you were talking about the Bible. I don't think you opened your mail hoping for an epistle from somebody. No one sends Christmas epistles. Um, although it would be fun maybe start that trend. You could start calling your Christmas card an epistle. Put simply, an epistle is a letter. Um, there's, there are some nuances that the scholars give to it, but, but for our purposes, it is simply a letter. A letter. And the context of the scriptures will give us the context of the letter. So, the letter to the Thessalonians is being sent to the church that lives at Thessalonica. All right? So, the, the, these things are, are conditioned, they're contextual uh, because of the place that they're sent to. So, if I send a Christmas letter, I'm sending it to family and friends, and it'll go to like, you know, 50 whatever people, and it'll be more general. Now, if I'm writing a letter to John instructing him to do something, then it's more specific. If I'm writing a love letter to my wife because I'm gone, it's even more specific. It, and so that's where, where we've got to come with these letters. They're written to different people at different times, and so that's really important to understand. It's a letter. We call them books. And sometimes when we're talking about books of the Bible, that throws us off from the fact that this is actually a letter. It's a letter that's put into Holy Scriptures. So which New Testament books are we actually talking about? Well, basically, we're, we're talking about Romans all the way to Jude. So we've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got Acts, and then we hop right into Romans. And then we're, we're riding the Epistles wave all the way to the end until we hit Revelation. Uh, Revelation... Um, 
is a separate genre for sure. So we're going from Romans to Jude. Romans to Jude. And the epistles are probably the most frequently preached and studied books of the Bible today. Uh, let, let's interact on this. Why do you think most, if you go to most churches today, if you did to 100 churches today, the odds are very highly in the favor of that the majority of churches will be preaching from an epistle. Why is that? Okay, practical. Straightforward instructions. Okay, there's a lot of them. Okay. Okay, they're written to the church. That's helpful. Yeah. Okay, the gospel is explained in them. Okay, yeah, we can relate to them a lot. Sometimes we've talked about some of the Old Testament genres that oftentimes we have a hard time um, connecting um, with them. Very good. That, that's basically what I thought through when I was thinking about uh, that phrase. So let's, let's talk about the context of the epistles. I hope I, we haven't worn out uh, the word context for you in this series, um, but it's very, very important. Again, just uh, the, the image that I like to use the most is walking into a movie theater late. And the movie's already started and it's in the middle of an action sequence. And you're trying to figure out who the good guy is, the bad guy. We've got to have context. Context is incredibly important to help us understand what is going on. And you'll see number one there under the context of the epistles. The epistles are the most context-specific genre. The most context-specific genre. Application must take into consideration context. Uh, that is because of what I just talked about. There are letters written to specific people or churches at a specific time. And so we've got to clue in to the context to understand. There is more at stake in the epistles and understanding context than there is in any other genre in the scriptures. Um, we can understand, we can relate to some other things um, in other genres without context. And yet context is what makes the epistle so relatable is because once we understand the context of the epistle, we can immediately begin to make uh, comparisons that are helpful in our understanding. Okay, so number two, they are often called occasional documents. Not that they were written every once in a while, but they were written for certain occasions. Um, so you think of several of the epistles in the New Testament. Um, it seems that First and Second Thessalonians, for example were written because the Thessalonians were having trouble with the end times and people are dying and they didn't understand exactly what was going on with Jesus coming back, but people have died. What's happening? And that was because, again, the context, if you go back to Acts, is that Paul couldn't hang around in Thessalonica very long. He got kicked out. And so he wasn't able to stay longer and explain himself. So the Thessalonian epistles have a certain context or occasion uh, that they're written to. Uh, letter A, they're written to a specific audience at a specific time. Uh, very, very important to see that. So you've got different epistles um, written by Paul, for example. You've got the prison epistles, which he wrote from prison, right? That was not a trick question. Written from prison. You have the pastoral epistles that are different, with a different context, written to Timothy and Titus to communicate different things at a different time. And so if you understand, wow, Paul's in prison writing this letter, as opposed to some of his other letters where he's not in prison, he's on a missionary journey and he's taking a break to write this letter, that makes a lot of difference. Letter B, we hear answers and responses, but not necessarily questions and problems. So when we're reading 
an epistle, we, we hear answers and responses, but we don't necessarily hear the questions and the problems that instigated Paul writing. So sometimes we hear these. From 1 Corinthians, um, there's, there's a clue, there's a, a little clue here every once in a while where he, Paul is clearly speaking to a situation that has come up. So if you go to um, 1 Corinthians and you see a, this phrase, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Okay, now we understand clearly that these people were having issues about this. They had so many issues, they actually wrote Paul and asked him a question about this, uh, this issue. That is brought up several times in 1 Corinthians. So we actually know some of the questions um, and some of the problems. But oftentimes we're just hearing one side. So it's like hearing one side of a telephone conversation. Um, there are times where you can understand a lot of what's going on by listening to the person that's talking. However, if the person that you're in the room with is mainly listening to the other side and, you know, doing the, uh-huh, yeah, okay, goodbye, they affirmed something and they said goodbye. That's about, we don't have a lot of context. However, if you're in the room with someone who's doing most of the talking, then you can get a lot more out of it because you go, oh, they're talking about their children, they're talking about vacation, you, you understand what's going on. So sometimes in the epistles... We only hear the answers and responses, not necessarily the questions and the problems. Every once in a while, we get those. Letter C. We must be careful not to place more emphasis on one letter as opposed to another. Oftentimes, this is done where um, people will place more importance on one of Paul's letters, for example, than another of Paul's letters. Or they'll say that the information in this letter supersedes the information in this one. And what they've done is they've begun to create a hierarchy of Scripture. That this part of Scripture is more inspired than this part of Scripture. Or we begin to play people off against each other. Paul versus James. Okay, Peter versus Jude. Start to, to, to play them against each other. And that, that destroys um, our understanding of the Word of God as inspired by God through human beings. So we've got to be careful not to place more emphasis on one letter. Specifically, that often happens with the book of Romans. Um, which Romans is a massive letter and it's a little bit more systematic and, and Paul walks through things a little bit more than he does in some of the other letters, yet that does not make the theology of the book of Romans any more important or give it any more power or authority than the theology of First Thessalonians, which is shorter. A letter D under occasional documents, we must be confident that what God wants us to know he has communicated to us. So what we've got is what's in this book. And we all wish that we had more sometimes than what's in this book. For example, the sermon today. We all wish that we had more of a grasp, more of an understanding. If only God had said this. If only he had let Paul tell us this. And yet we, we have to understand that, that God has given us exactly what he wants us to know. Um, if our God is omnipotent and if he is sovereign, he didn't make a mistake. Oh, I forgot I left that one out of Ephesians. That doesn't happen. He's given to us what we need to know. So sometimes, when we get into the epistles, we really start to speculate about things that are mentioned like once. So you go to 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the baptism for the dead. What is that? Well, it's the only time it's mentioned in Scripture, so we have nothing else to compare it to. And so we could spend weeks and months talking about what the baptism is of the baptism for the dead is and miss the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. And so we must be careful... Um, that we understand that God has communicated to us what we need to know. We can be confident in that. 
All right, the, the epistles are structured rather similarly. Um, and we have also lots and lots of letters from the same time period that we found that seem to fit this, that, that Paul or Peter, some of the other writers, were taking an existing genre and just tweaking it to use for themselves. So the structure is really fivefold. You have a greeting. In fact, let's do this. Let's do this. Uh, let's go to First Thessalonians. Get your Bible out and let's see this. First Thessalonians. And this structure is is more or less evident in different books, um, different letters. Some of the letters are a little bit more structured than the others. Some, um, it seems that that Paul has. Um, written maybe a little more quickly, or maybe for a more urgent situation. But you'll see in the structure here, 1 Thessalonians begins this way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's who's writing. Who's being written to? To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the greeting? Grace to you and peace. And so if you look through the letters, almost all of the New Testament epistles will begin with something like that kind of greeting. Um, some of them are extended, some of them are short, uh, but there is a greeting of some sort, almost always followed by thanksgiving. So you'll see this in First Thessalonians, starting in verse 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always, and begins to go through this thanksgiving um, to God for the Thessalonians. It's meant as an encouragement, it's an extended introduction, and begins to, Paul begins to sneak in some of the things he's going to talk about through the rest of the letter. So he begins with a greeting, and then he gives a thanksgiving. Now, there's a, there's a couple of places where he, he skips the thanksgiving, because <laughs> there's not as much to be thankful for. Like the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul is, is, is pretty hot on something. He's pretty fired up, and it's like he doesn't really have time, or he doesn't want to give them false hope in giving a thanksgiving at the beginning of the book, and he just charges right in and says, Hey, Galatians, what is going on? And so that, that is an exception to the rule, but almost all the time there is a thanksgiving. Followed by the body, which is vague on purpose, because whatever issues Paul is addressing comes next. And so again, depending on the length of the letter, he'll delve into many issues or just a few issues as the body, the, the, the middle, the meat of the epistle. That's seen in 1 Thessalonians as he gets to chapter 2. And makes his way basically in through two and three and part of chapter four as the body, the meat, the, the biggest chunks of what he wants to communicate to the Thessalonians. Oftentimes, this is followed for by moral exhortation. So the book of Ephesians is perhaps the best example of this. There are six chapters. The first three are mainly um, doctrine, mainly exploring um, different parts of the theology that he's presenting to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, there's a very distinct turn towards moral exhortation, towards, if we want to call this, practicality, where, where the first three chapters are up here and praising the Lord and praising God and teaching about various things. And then chapter 4 brings it down. Okay, so what are you to do now that you know this? So moral exhortation follows. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul packs a whole lot into his body, but if you look uh, at the end in chapter 5, specifically starting in verse 12, it's like he ran out of scroll or something. Because you've got really packed verses in here. Look at verse 16. Rejoice always. 17. Pray without ceasing. 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. It's their staccato, machine gun, just one after the other. 
here at the end in their moral exhortation. This is how you ought to live based on what Paul has written ahead of time, or Peter, or James. And then there's a closing. And depending on the letter, again, they can be long or short. So 1 Corinthians and Romans have really long closings because Paul's saying hi to people. He's saying hi from people that he's with to other people. And that closes out um, the letter. If you look at the end of 1 Thessalonians, where we, all, where we are, starting in verse 23, but particularly starting in verse 25, is the closing. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And then something very familiar, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's letters specifically are bookended by grace. They start with grace to you and they end with grace again. And Paul's letters are all defined that way. Let's turn the page and talk about some application issues because, as we've said, the epistles are oftentimes uh, easier for us to grasp what we ought to do, what the application is, how we ought to live in response to the epistle. And I've got two quotes, um, not from uh, Playing With Fire, but from another very helpful book alongside it, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, Number one, a text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or his or her readers. Which is really important because you had a bad English teacher. All of your readings of literature in high school or college became relative. And what do you think this means? And, and that is not how we ought to read the scriptures. We have all kinds of cults because of people doing that very thing. A text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or his or her readers. And we've got to keep in mind here two things. There are two authors of every book of Scripture, right? Paul wrote Ephesians. God wrote Ephesians. And so when we think of the author and what he intended, what he meant, we've got to remember that it's not merely Peter writing the letter. It is God, as Peter says in his epistle, it is God working through, moving through men to write the Holy Scriptures. So we've got to be very careful as we come to application. You can't just dive into the scriptures, say, take a, take a sentence out of a verse and, and yank it out of context and say, oh, this is what this means. When that's clearly what it never could have meant. Number two is related. Whenever we share comparable particulars with the first century hearers, God's word to us is the same as his word to them. Meaning, if there's a portion of Paul's letter that's talking about divorce and we are struggling with the issue of divorce, God's word to them is God's word to us. Now, we're going to have to do some cultural analysis, but when God speaks clearly about issues that are the same now as they were then, that is God's word to us, meaning we don't have to really do a lot of, oh, I don't know about this. It's clear in the scripture. Now, that doesn't happen all the time in the epistles, uh, like in the uh, being baptized for the dead. Um, like in some passages related to that. Uh, your your uh, bullet point there is application is easier and surer when applied to comparable situations. It's just basically me restating that quote. Application is easier and surer. Is that a word? Cinda, is that a word? Yeah. All right. Oh, well, good. We'll find out. When applied to comparable situations. So when those comparable situations come up, 
take heart, it is a little bit easier to, to apply those. Number three, focus on what can be said for certain and discern what is merely possible. Okay? That's really important. Focus on what can be said for certain and discern what is merely possible. Uh, bullet point number one, do not make one-time things central to your theology. What do I mean by one-time things are things that are mentioned once in the scriptures. Um, you see them there once, there's a little more mystery to them. Um, those are not the passages that we make central to our theology because um, God has made clear throughout scripture the things that are central. The themes that run throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Second, do not cling to secondary issues as tightly as you do to primary issues. Well then, what's primary and what's secondary? Well, we can debate about that as well. Um, but what we've done in Reality Check, you guys will remember this, is we've got some primary issues that are in our closed hand. They're in a fist. We don't let go of the deity of Christ. Um, we don't let go of the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't let go of the, the truth of the resurrection. When we begin to talk about spiritual gifts... When we begin to talk about modes of baptism, they are still very crucially important. But we have room to disagree here and have an open hand where we don't have room to disagree on these issues. So, my point in saying that is do not cling to secondary issues as tightly as you do to primary issues because secondary issues come up like crazy in the epistles. They come up all the time in the epistles. So we have to be very careful and charitable. Do not let difficulties obscure the overall meaning of a paragraph or larger section. I've already used that example. Baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, don't get so hung up on baptism for the dead that you miss the whole point of what Paul's talking about in resurrection in chapter 15. So don't let the obscure make the whole chunk, the whole paragraph, the whole section disappear because you're just focused on the obscure passage. Number four, meaning. Meaning can only come from the author's intention. I know we already covered this, but this is to um, be in contrast a little bit to the next one. So meaning can only come from the author's intention, but significance can come from outside the author's intention. And this is really holy ground uh, to lots of people in lots of different ways. So we've got to be careful here. Um, have you been encouraged, uh, edified, um, had your eyes open to something true in the scriptures by a, a verse or a portion of a verse and gone back and said, oh, that's actually not what that's talking about. <laughs> that happens from time to time. Um, sometimes that happens by accident. Sometimes it happens by lack of study. We ought to be extremely cautious when we're taking significance from other passages. An example would be Philippians 4.13. Okay? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, that has been abused throughout history. Uh, we've got to be careful that we don't take this, the, the meaning of Philippians 4.13 to be, I can do all things and apply it to anything, any situation that we're in. Because we have to go back to the scriptures and see what the context is, is there, to see what Philippians 4.13 is rooted in. And it's not rooted in some vague, generalized statement that if you want to jump off a building and fly, that you can because Christ strengthens you to do that. Um, it's rooted in discussion of how do we live with contentment no matter what kind of situation that we're in. See, so the meaning 
is, is controlled by the author's intention. Now, there might be significance to the fact where you're wrestling and struggling with something. You don't have a Bible with you. You're somewhere, you're at work, you're, you're, you're taking a test, whatever. The significance of that passage may encourage you because it's God's Word. Now, that, that, that's, a, that's a, tie, a tough distinction to make, and we don't have time to delve into that, but the meaning and the significance are two very important things to look into. And I would encourage you to uh, grab Playing With Fire and read through this chapter and see some of that. Or also take a look at um, the other book, um, what I just mentioned it earlier. Yeah, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I think we have it in the uh, library, and I've got a copy, as, as does Ron. Number six, be careful when extending the application beyond the original intent of the text. Again, we're just hammering this home. We don't have time to, to go into that, that, um, that helpful, those helpful passages below that. Um, but we've got to be careful when extending the application beyond the original intent of the text. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't apply to you at all. Because <laughs> it wasn't written to you. Um, so we run into, we run into um, culture, very, very clearly cultural things where it says greet, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I don't think... That Steve greeted you with a whole... Did you greet anyone with a holy kiss this morning? Thank you. Um, that, that did not happen. Okay? And we've got some other things like uh, Paul telling Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Okay? That's not God's word to you. <laughs> that was Paul giving um, Timothy an, uh, an, an exhortation. Now we can learn from that. We can take from that. But the meaning is not, I'm like Timothy... And so because I'm like Timothy, I ought to drink a little wine for my stomach's sake. Well, the first question is, is your, you have a problem with your stomach? Because if you don't, then there's no, there's no correlation here. So we've got to be very careful when we extend the application beyond the original intent. Verse 7, I mean, number 7, let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is a very, very important point. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's why you have cross-references. That's why we have Bible study tools. Um, go and look at what the rest of Scripture has to say. We have many authors in the Bible, and we have one author of the Bible. And that one author was superintending all the other authors. And so if that's the case, and if we believe that, then Scripture can help us to interpret other Scripture. Number eight, applications are not endless. There's a range of applications, sometimes smaller or sometimes larger, depending on the text. Applications are not endless. There is a range. All right, practical process for reading the epistles. How do we read the epistles differently than we read wisdom literature? How do we read the epistles differently than we read the Psalms? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, one very helpful way you'll see under uh, letter A, observation, what do I see, is read through the entire letter in one sitting. That's really easy when it's like Jude. <laughs> but if you want to understand Romans, one really helpful way is to sit down, block out all distractions, and read all the way through Romans. Um, have you ever read a novel, uh, put it down for a month, picked it back up, read a little bit, put it down for a month, picked it, where, what's going on? I don't even remember this character. Reading all the way through gives us a continuity to see the themes, to see the words, to see the phrases, to see the, the, uh, the things that come up again and again in the book. So one very helpful way is to read through it in one sitting. And then as you read through it, if you take notes or if you're using a study guide to help you reconstruct the historical situation as best you can from the details available. So these things, th- this makes even like travel plans in Paul's letters very helpful. Um, when you see historical 
when you when you see um, what's going on in the writing of the letter, where is Peter, where is Jew, where who are they writing to? Try to reconstruct the historical situation so that we can grab as accurate a context as possible. B interpretation. What does it mean? Well, we want to interpret the epistle in light of its specific book context first. So when we have when we're interpreting things, we look to the rest of the book. We start here at the word, or we start at the phrase. We go to the paragraph, and we go to the rest of the book first to see is this what John meant. Well, John talked about love in chapter 4 of 1 John, but he also talked about it in chapter 2, so let's look there before we go outside of the book of 1 John. Carefully follow the argument being made. That is what so many of us love about the epistles. There's a logical argument, there's a flow, there's a if-this-then sort of nature to the epistles um, that is very helpful to us, that oftentimes is not there in narrative, um, that's, that a lot of times is not there in wisdom literature. Um, but, but Paul and Peter and James and John and Jude, they are making arguments. And so they are going logically through an argument to make their case. So follow the argument. Sometimes that's simple. There's key words, therefores, if, thens, so, that. When those things come up, take a look at those. Um, is the subject mentioned elsewhere in the book? That would be a helpful way to interpret uh, next, interpret the epistle in light of the overall biblical context. Again, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Start in the book and then go outside of it um, for help as you interpret. One really helpful thing, especially if you're going slow through a book, is for each paragraph, write down what the author means. If you can't distill down four sentences into one, um, then you're not understanding well enough what's going on in that unit of thought. Okay, so it's like sitting in, in a, a lecture and hearing the professor speak, um, you cannot, well, some of you might be able to, you cannot record every single word that he's saying. You have to distill it. You have to summarize. You have to catch the main points. You don't need to write down that joke he made because that's not part of the outline. So, so we, we keep uh, what is central and we write that down. See, application. How does it relate and what do I do? Or we look for the biblical truth. Uh, this is the wide lens. Focus on those truths that touch on the main themes of all of Scripture. So we look for the biblical truth first. Then we look for eternal and cross-cultural principles. Okay, so what does this passage tell us about what we are to believe and how we are to live? Which is the, the two main thrusts of the epistles. What are we supposed to believe? And then how does that translate into how we live? And that, that should be eternal, cross-cultural. It crosses all cultures. It goes across boundaries it would apply generally to human beings. Next, what timeless truth or timeless truths are present? And you could help. You could do this helpfully by writing it out using present tense verbs. Write that out. What is the timeless truth? Therefore, it's not merely a past truth. It is a true truth that is present with me right now. I mean, meditate on that. I'm carefully. Relate the biblical situation to comparable contemporary situations. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder. Okay, so clearly we've got, you know, if we've got marriage issues, um, generally the marriage issues that we have are addressed in the scriptures. Now when we get into bioethics, <laughs> we've got a whole different ballgame because Paul knew nothing of bioethics um, on a stage that we do. There was no in vitro fertilization. There was no, uh, all, there was not all this technology. There was not all these ways of doing things. And so 
when we have that come much of a distinction, we've got to be really careful and we've got to find the principles that are there to help us interpret the scriptures. And then how can you apply these truths today? The scripture is not just there to make our heads bigger and to make us win more arguments. It is there to change how we live and how we interact and how we understand God. And so we ought to ask those kinds of questions of the scriptures.